Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Hi, everyone. This is just a reminder before we hop into the episode that this episode is the second half of the conversation that I had in episode three. I wanted to keep the episodes around or under 30 minutes, so I split that recording in half. So you're hearing the the, the second half of that conversation, so it will kind of start off uh, di- abruptly uh, because I literally just sliced the, the episode down the middle. So just reminding you of that, but enjoy. The next question is interesting. Should minorities make an effort to do business with minority firms? Assume that firm A and firm B offer the same product or service, but one is run by Mr. Gonzalez and the other by a person whose ancestors came over on the Mayflower. Which one should the person of color patronize? So think about that for a second. So my answer to this one is simple. And again, it's coming from my perspective of being an entrepreneur, a, a business of color, but also someone who is getting more and more proud and competent in my identity as being a person of color, being a biracial person. And my answer to that is I believe in supporting businesses of color because the the thing is I, as a business owner, I know the importance of things like word of mouth and um, support for small business and things like that because it directly gives me opportunities in life being an owner of a small business and being the face of my practice. But also, I look at the bigger picture, and that's if we don't support our small businesses, especially those of people of color, then those people cannot achieve the, quote, equal opportunities that are available in this country allegedly for all. I am constantly choosing to order products and services from small businesses that will benefit other people of color versus simply ordering from Walmart or a big box store. Even if the costs are lower for those corporations, I know that the additional money that I'm paying is supporting livelihood and wealth building for people of color. And the reason that it's important to me is because people of color in this country have not been given the same opportunities to build wealth because of enslavement, because of disenfranchisement, because of racism. So for me, a way to support equity and equality is to to support those small businesses of color. That's my take on it. So I have a quote here that I'm going to share. According to a famous list compiled by Peggy McIntosh, white people enjoy and can rely on 46 privileges that attach by reason of having white skin, 
including the assurance that store clerks will not follow them around, that people will not cross the street to avoid them at night, that their achievements will not be regarded as exceptional or credits to their race, and that their occasional mistakes will not be attributed to biological inferiority. Scholars of white privilege write that white people benefit from a system of favors, exchanges, and courtesies of which outsiders of color are frequently excluded. End quote. That quote kind of speaks for itself, and it kind of piggybacks off of that question that I just answered about supporting a business of color. So I'll leave that where it is. The next question. If it is legitimate for a school to have a black or Latino student organization, is it equally legitimate to allow white students to form a white student organization and to use student fees to fund it? Think about that one for a second. Okay, so y'all know I have an opinion about this one. My answer is no. Schools have uh, black and Latino student uh, organizations and things like that because students of color and minorities across the board, whether it be like a, a queer student alliance or something like that, they need a safe place to feel supported and in community with other people. The idea that, okay, so say there is a black or Latino student organization And a white student or a group of white students says, well, if they get to have a black or Latino organization, we should be able to form a white student organization. And oftentimes it's cited that in not allowing them to do so, that it is reverse racism. My response to that would be there's nuance, but also white is the majority and there is white privilege, and there already is an overwhelming presence of white supremacy in this country and our systems. Hence the need for theories like critical race theory to call out, to identify, and to change the influence of white supremacy over the systems that are in place right now, the same systems that impact the variety of people of color and of ethnic minorities that exist in this melting pot of a country that we live in. So no, it's not okay for there to be a white student organization, um, especially funded by tax dollars. And the reason that it's okay for there to be an organization for black or Latino students funded by school dollars is because it is a way to provide equity and a safe place for students who do not fit into the majority. White people already enjoy so many privileges and things that minorities do not get. It's it's interesting that this question comes after I just shared the quote about the list that was compiled by Peggy McIntosh that identified 46 privileges that white people have that minorities do not have. So I will leave that one where it is. So the next quote I'm going to share is very interesting, and I think it it comes off of the same 
uh, train of thought that I shared earlier in which there's this uh, boom of misinformation that, uh, you know, uh, illegal immigrants and people of color commit crimes at larger rates than white people, etc. And I say misinformation for a reason, but let me share this quote and you'll see what I'm getting at here. Quote, figures show that white collar crime including embezzlement, consumer fraud, bribery, insider trading, and price fixing causes more deaths and property loss, even on a per capita basis, than does all street crime combined. End quote. I paused for a second there because that is very validating because our news is constantly peppered with stories about street crime and and things like that that occur. Uh, but white collar, and it's not called white collar crime because it's white people per se that do it. However, uh, if you read between the lines, uh, most of the people in the United States who are convicted of embezzlement, consumer fraud, bribery, insider trading, price fixing, basically shady stuff, uh, uh, high-level, high-dollar type crime stuff, they tend to be usually white men. Um, But I thought it interesting that when pulling the data, the actual cost and impact on society as a whole is much higher for white-collar crime than it is for blue-collar crime. Uh, And if we look at our prison system, we see that the majority of people in in our United States prisons happen to be men of color. Um, And it's usually for lower level crimes, such as drug possession. And that's not a coincidence. So, and I've done a whole podcast series, multiple um, reviews on things around this topic, but a lot of times people who commit these uh, white-collar crimes do not uh, face the same consequences uh, in number of years or uh, damages, penalties, and stuff like that as people of color do for smaller uh, level offenses. And I'm going to leave that one where it is. And so the next few questions, they kind of touch on the idea Uh, or the argument from the majority that says, well, affirmative action or critical race theory or um, basically breaking down systems and stuff that uh, to make it more favorable and uh, equal to minorities is, in fact, reverse racism. So let's dive in, shall we? A majority of people of color support affirmative action. A majority of whites oppose it. Why is that? So think about it for a second. My answer to this is simple. Affirmative action gives an increased opportunity to those who are disadvantaged by white supremacy. People of color obviously would support it because it levels the playing field and makes it easier for them to access opportunities. That makes sense to me. Why white people would oppose affirmative action is simple to me as well. 
if white people are benefiting from white supremacy, affirmative action, which aims to reduce the imbalance of access to opportunity, would feel like it's taking away from white people. And if you're already top of the food chain and are benefiting so much to give equity to those in the margins would feel like you're losing something. Hence the reason why some white people are opposed to things like affirmative action. I'll leave my commentary there. The next question, does affirmative action reward incompetence? If so, why has the country's productivity not slipped during the 25 years that the program has been in operation? And why do most large corporations favor it? So think about that for a second. So this has a couple of questions in one. So the first part is, does affirmative action reward incompetence? There's nuance to that. Affirmative action doesn't mean hand out things that are undeserved to people who haven't worked hard to get it. Uh, Some people will say that. However, it's, in a nutshell, affirmative action is giving opportunities to those who have been shut out from opportunity despite having the merits and the Uh, prerequisites to receive those opportunities. The idea of incompetence comes in, and there have been several uh, court hearings and stuff like that where a white person would sue, say, a college or university uh, because they were passed over uh, for admission because of affirmative action uh, measures that have been put into place. And the argument is, this is reverse racism, meaning, in their argument, usually says, well, I was more qualified to be admitted to the school than this minority person who was accepted due to affirmative action. And so, again, that argument is nuanced, but I would say this is just an application of, you know, people getting upset when white supremacy is being uh, eroded a little bit. Um, We still got a long way to go until that's even going to happen. But anytime there's change, people get bent out of shape about it. So I don't believe that affirmative action awards uh, or rewards incompetence. And I think that can tie into a previous question that was asked about should people of color... um, patron uh, businesses of color. And that comes to mind for me because I had just got done saying, you know, I support black businesses, I support businesses of color, small businesses and things like that. Um, And so with regards to incompetence, I don't think as a consumer, people would support a minority business if it wasn't providing the service or providing excellence. So um, as a person of color, I believe and I see in reality that if something is done by a person of color, it has to be not just equal to um, the businesses of the white majority, but it has to be better uh, because we always have to work harder to get a fraction of what our counterparts get. And so the idea of incompetence is void to me because if 
someone provides a product or service, if it meets my needs and I feel that it does what it's supposed to do and it supports a business of color at the same time, it's a win-win for me. It carries more weight and meaning than going to a corporation um, for that same product or service. Um, and so the the second part of this question is is more so giving information. Well, people say that uh, affirmative action um, rewards incompetence. Well, if that's the case, then why has our nation's productivity and profitability and stuff like that not decreased during the time that affirmative action was the strongest? And the answer to that question is because affirmative action doesn't reward incompetence. It's not... Uh, lowering the bar uh, for the sake of lowering the bar. It is opening up access and opportunity. And then the last part was why do most corporation why do most large corporations favor affirmative action? Because they see that it produces better results when there's a diversity of people and people are able to access uh, opportunities, but also to have different, viewpoints and uh, worldviews brought into a corporate structure, businesses thrive because diversity is a great thing. And uh, you can better serve your customers through the services and products that you provide if your work culture mirrors that of the diverse population that you are trying to access with those services. So um, that was a really good question and it lumped a bunch of them together uh the next one is if the police stop black male motorists 50 percent of the time and whites only 10 percent of the time and justify those stops by pointing out that black males commit more crime than white males is that fair so think about that for a second my answer to that is it's not fair because it makes the assumption that because the minority is considered an other, that it warrants additional enforcement. Uh, and I just got done talking about how the majority of people in the United States prisons are people of color. It's not a coincidence. This is literally getting at systemic racism uh, on its application level. Uh, there are more black and brown people that are pulled over because the system, the law enforcement system, the criminal justice system, our legal and government structures are all systemically set to advantage the white majority and to disadvantage uh, minorities. Um, so no, it's not fair. Um, and I see the system. Uh, for what it is, and I know that it is systemic racism at play, which is why we have movements currently such as defund the police and encouragement to implement new systems because the ones that we have are broken. And so the next question kind of piggybacks off of that one. If a white police officer sees two young black or Latino males walking down the sidewalk with no obvious destination or reason for being there, is it okay for the officer to ask them where they are going. Is it insulting and disrespectful to do so, even if the officer asks politely? So think about that one for a second. 
surprise, surprise, my answer to this is it is not okay to question somebody who is not committing a crime. Just because you're Black or Latino and the police officer doesn't perceive that person as belonging there doesn't mean that it's okay to interrupt their freedom. Uh, If they're not committing a crime, they're not hurting anybody. And one would argue that your inclination to question the person of why they're there uh, shines a light on your biases and prejudices. But also, my answer to this question is influenced by the fact that so many black and brown people have found themselves dead in situations like this, where someone makes an assumption that a person doesn't belong, and then it goes from zero to 100. For example, Elijah McClain, walking home from a grocery store, and he's black, he's bundled up because he is sensitive to the cold, and police officers assume that he doesn't belong where he's going, even though he clearly communicates what it is that he's doing, and he ends up dead in that interaction because somebody made an assumption over who he was, where he should be, and how he looks suspicious. The call came in that he looks suspicious. That was from a Karen, I'm sure. And Elijah McClain is now dead because of that systemic racism, that prejudice. And so to answer this question, it is not okay for a police officer to stop someone and to question where they're going or what they're doing if they're not outwardly committing a crime. And there's also been, because I'm a therapist, I hear all sorts of stories, good, bad, and ugly. There have been many instances where somebody actually does reside in a neighborhood that they... um, From the outside, the prejudice would tell a person, you don't belong here. That's racism. But also, I've had clients who have been approached by law enforcement and questioned, where do you live? What are you doing here? What are you up to? The question here says, even if the officer asked politely, I would argue that by asking at all, it's not polite. It's prejudice. Um, But people are really hurt by law enforcement who makes these assumptions. So that obviously is an emotional question for me, but my answer is law enforcement should not make assumptions. If you don't see a crime being committed and nobody is being hurt, mind your business. Moving on to the next question where we only got two more questions left and then I'm going to wrap this up. Many of us like to think that society is less racist now than before, at least in a raw sense. But hate speech seems to be increasing in the age of blogs, websites, and talk radio. If so, what is the solution? Don't conservative radio personalities and anonymous users of the internet have a right to say what they think? Think about that. All of these questions are incredibly nuanced, so you've caught on to that by now. But it starts off with, does do people generally think that society is less racist than it was before? Sure. When I bought my house, for example, I didn't have to worry about the fact that I was purchasing a house in a primarily white conservative area. My skin color didn't 
directly impact my ability to do that as it would have, say, 50 years ago. However, uh, to the part about how hate speech is increasing and polarizing uh, media forms such as talk radio, blog, social media, that kind of stuff uh, seems to be on the rise. The answer is because people can always tout the constitutional right of freedom of speech to weaponize their hate. And I am no legal scholar, but if I'm not mistaken, constitutional rights are there with the caveat that if those rights are not being practiced in the violation of somebody else's rights. So as far as hate speech, the question asks, well, what's the solution? The simple solution is bring down the systems and the vehicles for hate speech, white supremacy, and um, all of that sort of stuff, because it, it harms people and it upholds systems that are detrimental to those of diverse backgrounds. And then the part says, well, don't conservative radio personalities and anonymous users of the internet have the right to say uh, what they think? Sure. On the surface level, the freedom of speech says you can speak your mind and whatever. However, if you're using, say, your uh, Facebook or your Twitter to say whatever it is that you want and it harms people, if your use of your rights are violating the rights of many, I would argue that the decision should be made to support the common good. An example that comes to mind is our former president used Twitter to, dear God, that was the most toxic shit I have ever witnessed. And I wasn't even a Twitter member, but you couldn't escape looking at any news without seeing the dumbass tweets from Donald Trump. And he did a lot of damage with his freedom of speech. Um, Case in point, remember the insurrection at the Capitol in January of this year? That was fueled by uh, freedom of speech and rallying people up and inciting people to do fucked up shit. So think about that. And then the final question. It is said that the arrow of progress is as often backward as forward. Which of the scenarios described in this book do you see as most likely for America's racial future? So obviously you would have had to have read the book to kind of fully answer this question, but I'm going to answer it from my perspective. So the first part is progress is often as backward as it is forward. Preach, because progress that had been made in previous decades has definitely been peeled back recently via our last president in the United States and this conservative uprising to basically undo years of progress towards making the world a more equitable and safe place for people of all backgrounds, colors, sexual orientations, identities, etc. So that's definitely fact that progress takes steps back as it goes forward. But The question of what do I see as most likely for America's racial future, I think that's left up to us. I mentioned before that um, probably by the time this episode comes out, the um, election day 
will have passed in my state of Virginia, and we'll probably know who won the governor race. But um, as far as what the future holds, it's really based on decision making and what we do in the present. I can say this, this is Sunday before uh, election day that I'm recording this, but if the uh, governor's seat is won by the Republican candidate in Virginia, uh, I perceive there being several steps back in uh, progress because the candidate has outright said that uh, critical race theory will be outlawed uh, on day one that he steps into office. Um, and I've mentioned in previous episodes of this series that that thought is scary and hurtful to me as a person of color, um, whether I choose to vote progressively or not, uh, that feels like a direct attack and threat. Um, and it's purposeful because that candidate is catering to a conservative base who believes that the United States has lost its way in becoming more progressive. But uh, for me, that's just scary. And I feel like um, momentum needs to keep going towards making sure that everyone has a safe place uh, in this country and in the world. Um, But also that those who are benefiting from white supremacy are having these tough conversations and accounting uh, and challenging and dismantling their privilege so that everyone is able to live the best quality of life possible. So with that being said, thank you so much for listening to this series that I've been doing on critical race theory. And Stay tuned because I am an avid reader and I truly love doing this podcast. It's helped me grow and learn so much. Um, But yeah, stay tuned. I'll see you next time um, and take care. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast, and best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today.